0: This is episode 80 of the Angry Tech News podcast for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. This is the Angry Tech News podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Ryan Benrose. so yeah it's been a while uh the last angry tech news was october 20th so that puts it at uh it's not quite three months yet so we're still good right i'm i'm getting out at least more you know more often than every quarter year work kind of killed me the last few months if you've been listening to grumpy old ben's you've been getting the updates of me taking a delivery job and taking a delivery job during the holiday season is it's rough uh it's better now that the holiday's over now we're getting the the shorter delivery routes and of course the layoffs are coming in the next week or two. So we'll find out if I survive that, but I think I'm all right. I still want agritech news to go forward and I really feel bad that I left you without one for a couple months. Uh, I am thinking of changing up the format to something that I can do more regularly. Uh, maybe, maybe something shorter, but more often, believe it or not, because, uh, Writing, the the biggest problem for me is writing up the scripts for some of these rants. Now, I'm very proud of these rants. I'm very happy with myself for putting together something that, you know, all of the the fancy wordplay and slip of the tongue and uh, subtle jokes. I particularly like doing that. I really enjoy it because at heart, I'm not really a podcaster. I'm a writer who just happens to be really good at going on unfocused rants. But I don't do unfocused rants for this show. Again, Grumpy Old Benz is where I do that. But maybe in order to get this done, to cut out the more time-consuming part, I I need to do something like, you know, shorter, more often ATNs with it or just reaction to stories of that particular day or something instead of full-on. I don't know. You know what? It's too early to say, and I'm not going to predict. But that's not what today's show is anyway, because just because I stopped doing shows does not mean that I stopped reading and collecting stories that I wanted to talk about. It means I didn't stop coming across things that Silicon Valley was doing that were infuriating that needed. I think I am always coming across tech news that I think I can add my two cents to. And whenever I do, every time I come across such a story, I open it up in a browser tab waiting for that day when I can write up my notes about it and deliver it to you guys. Well, today, I had to clear my browser tabs. See, my other big project for this month is to finally move off of Windows for good. I've been dual booting for a couple months between Windows 8 and Arch Linux, but the time has come to go away from Windows for good. As of January 1st, the grace period ran out on a lot of the software that I've been using. Uh, Companies these days who don't merely not support old OSs and say, yeah, you get the software as is, but actively go out and write code to disable their stuff on old browsers because Because we live in a world with authoritarian control freaks everywhere. Uh, Some examples, all Chromium browsers have pretty much told me to piss off now. Um, Another one is Steam, which is where I have a a non-trivial digital library in the Steam account, and they have... It's the source of the majority of windows only programs that I still run. Yes. In fact, uh, I am now the victim of having a digital library cut off. I have a lot of games that I'll never play again because I'm never going to install another version of windows. And steam has actively told me, screw you. You don't get to play video games anymore on this operating system. But again, uh, not, not the focus of today's store or today's show, uh, the following stories are all, well, they're old news. They are things that happened sometime in the last three months, and I opened them up in browser tabs, and I could not let them go. I could not keep them or keep them in. So here you go, the last Angry Tech News of 2023, now in 2024. From the Wooden Shoes Department, Generative large language models more commonly known by their marketing name of AI have got the copyright world in a tizzy artists and people who fancy themselves as artists by and large don't like their stuff being used to train these models because they fear the AI will take their jobs and for most of them going by Sturgeon's law that fear is justified. Sure, not all of them, the really good artists will always be in demand, but the mediocre ones who draw a paycheck creating mass-produced corporate logos or product marketing or Disney animation or low-grade furry porn, but I repeat myself, will find themselves pushed out of their comfortable niche by the inexorable march of progress and automation. Just like has happened to elevator operators, bank tellers, buggy whip vendors, and thousands of other industries before. Of course... Just because it's inevitable doesn't mean the workers who are losing their jobs to something they see as unnatural won't push back against it. The irony, by the way, is that the way the AI is trained is far more natural than most other disruptive technologies. You show the machine lots and lots of pictures of things so that it gets an idea of what those things look like, and then it can create something new that's based on what it's seen before. You show it some, uh, you know, a thousand pictures of dogs, you tell them all its pictures of dogs, and it learns how to draw a dog. If this process sounds at all familiar, it's because that's how we train human artists too. The process of finding publicly available content on the internet, downloading it, looking at it, and learning from it. It's called browsing when it's done by a human, but when it's done by a machine, it goes by the much more loaded and scary-sounded name of scraping. Well, for those of you who don't want to make this technological march of progress too easy, researchers at the University of Chicago have come up with a new way to slow it down just a little bit. A tool called Nightshade, which which can be run on a piece of digital art to add steganographical artifacts, which, while generally not noticeable to the human eye, can significantly degrade the learning process for current generative AI models. The paper describes a way to carefully craft images which look like one thing but have invisible pixels, at least not noticeable to humans, which encode a second image. Feeding as few as a hundred of these images into the model, the researchers were able to convince a trained stable diffusion model to produce an image of a cat when prompted for a dog or an image of a cow when prompted for a car. So if you're an artist producing and copywriting low effort work and don't want to be automated out of a livelihood just yet by a computer algorithm that can do your job about a million times faster than you can, take heart. Soon you will have a weapon to stick it to those evil AI copycats allowing you to stave off your obsolescence for at least a short while. Of course, the technique has to be specifically tailored to each image you want to corrupt and only works on the current generation of models. I imagine it's quite possible to tweak the generative algorithms in the next generation to be immune to this kind of attack. At that point, the arms race is on with one side building better and better mousetraps while the other side races to build better mice. Hey, I wonder if you could write an AI to do that from the incoming minority report department apple has introduced a new feature in ios 17.3 to solve a problem that apple created in a very apple way by giving apple more control of your life biometric authentication like fingerprints or face id is a convenient alternative used by millions of people to unlock a phone but up until now that's all it's been a convenience The authoritative authentication method has always been a password or pin code. The problem that Apple has identified is that when you're out in a public place and you pull out your phone, enter the pin, and someone's looking over your shoulder and boom, they've got your pin. Now all they have to do is wait for you to carelessly leave your phone on the bar and look away so they can swipe your phone, enter your pin, immediately turn off all the other security features, change your password, et cetera, et cetera, and Bob's your uncle. Now they have control over everything in your whole life. At this point, I will leave off my usual long rant about why the hell your whole life is connected to your smartphone. After all, we are talking about the kind of people who apparently put their phones or pull their phones out in a crowded bar rather than, oh, I don't know, socializing with other humans while they're out in public. Now enter Apple's stolen device protection feature, which, when enabled makes it so that you have to authenticate using Face ID or Touch ID before you can do really dangerous stuff like changing account settings, buying something with Apple Pay, or accessing any stored keychain credentials. Seems pretty secure, doesn't it? I mean, it is if it means that you need Face ID in addition to a password. Then in that case, it does move the needle toward more security. But that needle is now moving away from convenience, and the biometric authentication is becoming primary. So how much longer will they even require a PIN or password? After all, having to use your face and a PIN, oh, that's way too far from convenience. And then there's the inherent problems with biometric authentication. First, the big argument that everyone always pulls out, law enforcement. Courts in the United States have ruled that it is perfectly legal for law enforcement to force you to authenticate using biometrics. They can hold the phone up to your face or grab your hand and force your finger onto a print fingerprint sensor conversely the same courts hold that the first and fifth amendments still prevent law enforcement from coercing a pin a password or any other form of speech that result from your or in your incrimination yeah yeah Bemrose, there you go again mistrusting the government don't you know law enforcement is good there to help us okay i don't like getting too political with this show listen to grumpy old ben's for that But all it takes is a brief cursory glance at history to realize that blind faith in government is not rational. Not even that far back in history, though, or either. Only a couple years ago, people were calling for the government to throw others in internment camps if they didn't take experimental medicine. And there are people still in jail today without due process for standing on the wrong street corner in Washington, D.C. three years ago this month. Anyway, where was I? Oh, right. I was talking about authentication. The biggest disadvantage to biometrics versus passwords, passwords can be changed. Why would you need to do this? Well, why do you ever need to change a password? When it leaks, if it gets bypassed, if the account is otherwise compromised, etc. For biometrics, that might mean your fingerprint has been copied or the scanner is spoofed or as it happens all too often in the IT world, literally every single day these days, when a corporate database is breached. By the way, Apple's response to all of this would be that, hey, our data hasn't been breached that you know of, and as far as you can tell the scanners are 100% reliable, just trust us with your data forever and you can't go wrong. Yeah, they're still a Silicon Valley company. The other very common reason to use a different password is to connect to a different account. Using biometrics means you only have one authentication token because You only got one face. You only have one set of fingerprints. You only have one body part to scan. Uh, This is short of having Peter Stormare cut your eyeball out and insert a new one, which I suppose is gonna be an option soon enough. But normally with biometrics, you have to use your real ID. No anonymity, no fake accounts. Remind me someday, by the way, to give you my full rant on why anonymity is so absolutely necessary to maintaining a free society. But anyway, with biometrics, you really effectively can only have one account. There's no separation between different parts of your life. There's no separation between work and home life. If you use that account, for example, to look at the kind of things that you wouldn't want to see at work, you're not supposed to then use the same account at at work. You could get fired. But again, that's a problem that companies like Apple are willing to help you with by offering the illusion of multiple profiles. Usually, Different, you know, a work profile, a home profile, all of those systems. I mean, every company has a system like that. Netflix has multiple profiles. Microsoft certainly has it. All of these work by, of course, giving that company even more control over your digital life. But, hey, most people are cool with that. Okay, really, I guess that's the crux of it. If you implicitly trust Apple, if you believe that they'll never be hacked, never leaked data, they'll never suffer a corporate breach, that their hardware, software, and and servers are completely secure. And if you believe that Apple's goals and yours will always align, that there will never come a time under the current or any future management of the company when corporate profit mandate ever leads Apple to do something against your personal best interests, well, in that case, if you believe all of that, then you have nothing to worry about, and I'm warning you about nothing. Also, if you believe all of that, I'd like to sell some of what you're smoking but I digress for the rest of us. You should be wary when somebody tries to push you toward authoritative biometric authentication. It is a front door lock to which you don't hold the key and you can't change the locks when the angry X comes by with an ax and a carload of broken sports trophies. Apple's stolen device protection feature is opt-in right now. You have to turn the feature on to use it. Can't complain about opt-in, but if it follows the uh, the track of other features, how long until it becomes opt out. It becomes the default because they say, Hey, people are asking for it. And besides they argue, it's so much more secure and convenient. And then after it's the default, how long after that, before they just remove the option of a pin altogether, after all, they've got the data that shows only 10% of people ever bother to switch it from the default. And Apple in particular, as many of you may know, has always been about supremely satisfying the 90% of their customers, by removing choice from the other 10%. And from the open and shut internet department, Google has identified the main privacy problem out on the internet, at least the way they tell it. See, when you visit a site, the site gains access to your IP address, A 32-bit identifier or 128-bit if IPv6 ever catches on, and hey, it's only been out there for two decades. These things don't just catch on overnight, you know. A 32-bit identifier that identifies where your connection is somewhere in the digital landscape that is the internet. Now, from a purely protocol standpoint, this, by the way, is a good thing. The IP address is the single most important piece of information necessary for exchanging data on the internet. Without your IP address, you wouldn't be able to connect to the internet at all because the server wouldn't know where to send the data. It'd be like asking that hot bar hookup. It'd be like asking that hot bar hookup to call you back, but forgetting to give out your digits. She simply wouldn't know where to call, but like your phone number, IP addresses can be abused by people who want to use that data for things other than sending you the data that you've requested with phone numbers. That usually means spam calls or unwanted SMS. IP addresses are harder to spam directly these days because firewalls usually reject unwanted packets and there's no real way to annoy someone directly with their IP, at least not anymore. I do recall a really fun feature in Windows 2000 where there was a service, on by default by the way, which would pop up a modal dialog on top of everyone, uh, someone's programs whenever the system received a packet on a certain port, which meant if you knew somebody's IP address you could spam them with pop-up dialog boxes saying whatever you wanted. Tons of fun, I guess, if you happen to be a bastard IT guy at the time, which I was. No, people who get your IP address today are a little bit less obvious now. The most common nefarious activity to use your IP address is to index it into a database of everything you've ever done online, and then throw an algorithm at that database to mine your habits, interests, and connections, usually for the purpose of trying to sell you products, but increasingly for the purpose of trying to cancel you online or reading the wrong books or for that, cancel you online for reading the wrong books, listening to the wrong podcasts, if you like the wrong tweets, whatever. Now, Google doesn't mention this when they're calling out because, of course, Google are the biggest one with the biggest database of indexes into that, although they try to index you using your Google account. You do, of course, log in everywhere with a Google account, don't you? Another common misuse of IP addresses is to use them as a proxy for physical location, usually in an attempt to impose some sort of geofencing and try to restrict your activities online based on geography, an impossible task. Thanks to VPNs tours, network address translation, and the fundamental fact that IP addresses are not in any way tied to geography, but as long as people with money want it, there will be Silicon Valley entrepreneurs willing to take their money and say they've solved it again, something Google does. Well, Because Google is a purveyor of the main reason why IP addresses are being abused. They have come up with a solution to the critical problem of people getting access to your IP address while you're browsing online. The solution is a new feature called IP protection in Google Chrome, starting with version 119, which enhances users' privacy by masking their IP addresses from prying online servers. How? By using Google's proxy servers. Now if you're in IT, you're already cringing. But for those who aren't, let me walk you through what I just said. For a normal web connection, your computer connects to another server and requests some data. Then the server sends data back to you. It needs your IP address so that it knows where to send that data. The strength of this system is that it's decentralized. There's no central authority or server anywhere. You can connect to Yahoo and I can connect to Bing and there's theoretically nothing in common between those connections except the protocol. A decentralized protocol like this is stable and highly scalable because there's no single central point of failure. There's also no single central point of censorship, something that's becoming more and more important on today's internet. What Google is proposing is to proxy every web connection from Chrome through Google servers, meaning you don't talk to a website anymore. You connect to Google's proxy servers and then Google connects to the website on your behalf. Actually, The proposed implementation calls for a multi-layer proxy where you connect to Google servers who then connect to another layer of third-party proxies such that neither proxy can see both the client and IP and the destination IP for improved privacy, according to Google's explainer document. But either way, the remote website doesn't get your IP address. They only get the IP of the proxy server. The side benefit by the way, is that now Google has the ability to track data mine and filter every single connection that every user in the world makes using Chrome. This is the perfect solution. If you're Google, I often say that the problem with using Google for security or Microsoft or Apple or whomever wants to be your internet gatekeeper today is that Google's threat models never consider Google to be a threat. According to bleeping computer, quote, initially IP protection will be an opt-in feature, ensuring users have control over their privacy and letting Google monitor behavioral trends with a select group of clients. Of course, having seen my share of centralization pushes in and shittified technologies by monopolist corporations before, I predict that this too will be opt-in only long enough for people to get used to the idea of Google proxying all the traffic on the internet, before Google switches it to opt out and then eventually to always on, removing user choice. Oh, and in a nod to that all important computing sector who would be broken by this initiative no, I don't mean end users or proponents of the decentralized web, I mean the geofencing clients Google has included a feature to make certain that the proxy entry points still have the proper course geolocation data approximately city level accuracy still handed to the people who want to geofence you. According to the explainer, not quite enough to pinpoint your house, but still enough to make sure that if you log in from Denver, you don't get the Philadelphia only content enough to make sure IP addresses can still be used to restrict the content you can access based on your physical location. In phase zero of the IP protection, Only Google domains will be proxied and, quote, only users logged into Chrome with U.S.-based IP addresses. The fact that they have numbered phases for this is evidence that Google definitely intends to boil this frog slowly and won't be stopping here. After all, they don't want to just squeeze too tightly too quickly unless people start to realize that Google really is an evil corporation bent on complete domination of the entire Internet and the destruction of the decentralized open web. They want to control it slowly so they can ultimately destroy one of the last places still resistant to corporate censorship. Angry. Thanks out there to everyone who continued donating during my long drought of shows. I appreciate every single one of you who continued and kept up monthly payments usually, and a couple people who still made one off payments to uh, no show. I recognize that I have not been providing the value back to deserve it. And for that reason, while I always welcome monetary support, I am not asking for it for this episode. Just listening to this show is enough. This one's free, you might say. And for those of you who use a modern podcast app from podcastapps.com, I doubly won't ask for support because as many producers have pointed out, my lightning note is down and I have not made time to fix it yet. If you are desperate to send me Satoshis, send them instead to Grumpy Old Ben's, where my co-host, Darren O'Neill, has helpfully set up a custodial wallet with Albi until I get my node working. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads. <coughs> Sorry. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen. But we are funded by your thoughts and prayers. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some encouragement send an email to ryan at angrytechnews.com. Tell me what you thought on the Fediverse at Sir Bemrose at noadendasocial.com. Log into the No Agenda Troll Room at trollroom.io with an old school IRC client and tell me if this episode meant anything to you, whether it made you laugh, made you cry, or just made you impotently shake a fist at Apple or Google. That's all for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry, stay angry, stay angry.